The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. This is Jacob Yasser Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. I would like to introduce our editorial board member, Dr. Nathan Sim of the Section of Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine at the Veterans Affairs Hospital in Washington, D.C. He is an assistant professor of medicine at George Washington University and conducts translational research on biomarkers of inflammation and coagulation in ARDS and sepsis. Welcome, Dr. Sim. Thanks, Yasha. Today, we're going to discuss an article that describes the novel finding of independent effects of traffic-related air pollution on the right ventricle. The article is published in the May 1, 2014 American Journal of Respiratory Care Medicine and is entitled Traffic-Related Air Pollution in the Right Ventricle, the Multi-Ethnic Study of Atherosclerosis. I'm pleased to be joined today by the first author of the study, Dr. Peter Leary, who is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Washington Medical Center in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine and attending physician in the Medical Intensive Care Unit as well as Pulmonary Vascular Disease Service. In addition, the co-author of the editorial that accompanies Dr. Leary's manuscript is also joining me today. Dr. Meredith McCormick is an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the Johns Hopkins University. So let's start our podcast with a question for Dr. Leary. Dr. Leary, I really enjoyed reading your manuscript. It's such an interesting study. I wanted to start our podcast today with your insight on how the study came about, and could you also tell us your hypothesis as you entered into the study? Well, thank you very much for inviting me here to talk about this paper. We really enjoyed doing the analysis and trying to think about what some of our results meant. Uh, I'm a relatively early stage investigator, and really the development of the research question is always an exciting time for me. I suspect it will stay the, the same throughout my career. My clinical interest and focus is on pulmonary vascular disease and right heart failure. And Stuart Rich and his colleagues at the University of Chicago published a very interesting case report in CHEST in 2010. In this report, they detail a woman with idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension who survived for 18 years on epoprostenol and ultimately succumbed to colon cancer. On autopsy, they found that her pulmonary vascular disease had continued to advance and was in fact quite severe. However, her right ventricle had hypertrophied and adapted instead of failed. I think this case really elegantly sums up the importance of conceptualizing pulmonary vascular disease as pulmonary heart disease and thinking of the right ventricle and the pulmonary circulation as a coupled unit. And since that time, I've been increasingly interested in trying to understand what factors influence the health of the right heart and might be important in promoting adaptation over failure. Air pollution is also clearly an important topic and topically relevant I had the benefit of world-class air pollution researchers led by Joel Kaufman locally at the University of Washington. Air pollution is already recognized in several studies as a contributor to cardiovascular disease, pulmonary disease, and cardiopulmonary mortality. And Victor Van He preceded me by a few years and demonstrated in the Blue Journal in 2009 that exposure to air pollution was associated with differences in left ventricular mass. But a compelling association between air pollution and the right heart had not been established. 
I really think that the overlap between inhaled air pollution and the right heart seemed particularly plausible, very interesting, and there were animal models that suggested that inhalants might have a disproportionate effect on the right ventricle compared to the left. All the same mechanisms proposed for the relationship of air pollution to the left heart, including inflammation, oxidative stress, uh, and endothelial perturbation, among others, could easily affect the right heart as well. And added to this, perturbations in the pulmonary circulation imposed by inhalants could directly alter the afterload of the right ventricle, speaking to a potential mechanism that was unique compared to the left ventricle. So taking all these factors together, my strong interest in the right ventricle, the importance of understanding the ramifications of air pollution, and particularly this interesting but unexplored overlap between these two factors, we decided to proceed with this study. Thank you for that, Dr. Leary. You mentioned the MESA cohort or the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis. Could you describe this cohort of people you studied? And could you also mention to us how you measured exposure to traffic-related air pollution in this MESA cohort? Absolutely. So the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis or MESA is a large prospective cohort study of community-dwelling adults which really is in the best tradition of the large cardiovascular-oriented NIH studies like the Framingham Heart Study. The MESA study carefully phenotyped participants without overt heart disease using cardiac MRI, chest CT, measures of flow-mediated dilation, anthropometrics, life habits, bank blood, and a suite of other features. The goal at onset was to investigate the prevalence, correlates, and progression of subclinical cardiovascular disease. In total, 6,814 participants at six different field centers representing six different cities, aged 45 to 84, with no clinical cardiovascular disease were enrolled. The MESA right ventricle, or MESA RV study, was an ancillary study that Stephen Kaywood, as the principal investigator, embarked upon to try and interpret right ventricular structure and function on cardiac MRI, and it was the largest population-based understanding of the right ventricle to date. MESA AIR, similarly, was another large ancillary study, which was designed to look at individual-level air pollution estimates and determine their association with cardiovascular disease. So our air pollution estimates use a suite of cofactors to build individualized estimates of exposure to air pollution. For the current study, we align these really vast and significant resources in the MESA AIR and MESA RV studies to focus on the relationship between chronic outdoor residential exposure and estimates of nitrogen dioxide with the right ventricle. So our true exposure of interest really was the degree to which a participant was chronically exposed to traffic-related air pollution. And the gold standard, I think, could be best conceptualized as a monitor placed in the posterior oropharynx continuously measuring exposure to traffic-related air pollution. That was obviously not feasible. Our estimates reflect estimates of air pollution outside a participant's home, and while highly correlated with such a true or gold standard exposure, likely still suffer from some degree of misclassification. Thank you for that, Dr. Leary. Dr. McCormick, I'd like to ask you, before we discuss the study findings with Dr. Leary, I'd like for you to hopefully provide some background to our listeners. First, can you tell us what we currently know about the effects of traffic pollution on the heart? Yes, previous studies have used a variety of approaches to approximate traffic-related pollution exposure. 
And these studies have demonstrated health effects ranging from short-term to longer-term exposure. Traffic-related pollution has been associated with both cardiac and pulmonary morbidity and mortality, and susceptible populations have been noted to be at increased risk. Traffic-related pollution is associated with increase in respiratory symptoms, decline in lung function, with exacerbations of asthma and COPD, and with increases in respiratory mortality. In terms of cardiac disease, traffic-related pollution has been associated with left heart dysfunction, worsening heart failure, as well as sudden cardiac death. The MESA study is one cohort that has previously demonstrated the link between traffic and left heart disease. The current study extends these findings and addresses a critical gap in our knowledge about health effects of traffic on the RV, which is literally at the intersection of the pulmonary and left heart health effects. Thanks, Dr. McCormick. I wanted to follow up with you regarding what Dr. Leary just alluded to in terms of measuring exposure to traffic-related air pollution, which kind of gets to the heart of this very intriguing study. So, again, as opposed to using something much more invasive, exposure to nitrogen dioxide was used as the surrogate for exposure to traffic-related air pollution. So I was hoping you could first describe whether you think that's an accepted standard as a surrogate. And so could you also describe how the nitrogen dioxide values were measured across these large geographic areas described in the study? Sure. As far as nitrogen dioxide as a proxy for traffic-related pollution, residential exposure to traffic can really be assessed in a variety of ways and has been in different studies. And such approaches have included self-report traffic proximity, measured distance from the road, traffic volume, traffic-related pollutant measurements from central monitoring sites, and then more complex modeling. Traffic results in an admixture of air pollutants, and different components have been measured for the purposes of studying health, sometimes in combination with information about proximity to roadways. So some examples might include particulate matter, ozone, carbon monoxide, volatile organic compounds, and there's temporal and spatial variation, which is unique to each of these, and the concentrations may vary accordingly. So, for example, nitrogen oxides and carbon monoxides are emitted during combustion, and so peak concentrations of these would occur during rush hour. By contrast, ozone might peak later in the afternoon when there's increased temperature and sunlight. The application of nitrogen oxides as a surrogate for traffic has been used previously and is an accepted approach. The large majority of nitrogen oxides originate from vehicular emissions. And while the exposure assessment in the MESA study does not include personal monitoring, it did not include the idealized dream monitor alluded to by Dr. Leary, which might be set in the posterior oropharynx. The design did improve on previous uh, applications of central site monitoring and incorporated measurements of concentrations of nitrogen oxides that are measured at EPA monitoring sites while also including elements that are more sophisticated and measured by the MESA study team, which include features of residences as well as measurements that were taken specifically at residential homes of participants enrolled in the study. Thanks, Dr. McCormick, for providing that background. So let's get into the meat of the study. Dr. Leary, your group looked at a total of 3,896 patients with an interpretable MRI, nitrogen dioxide measurement, and available covariate data. What did you find? So the results were actually relatively straightforward. Increasing exposure to nitrogen dioxide was associated with increased right ventricular mass. And I believe that this was really the core finding. 
An interquartile increase in nitrogen dioxide exposure was associated with an approximately 5% increase in right ventricular mass. This is in the same ballpark as the 2% change in left ventricular mass that you see with the presence or absence of diabetes, or the 5% change in left ventricular mass that you see in current smokers, and is about the same difference in right ventricular mass that we see in MESA participants that differ in age by about 10 years. The relationship between nitrogen dioxide and right ventricular mass was really relatively insensitive to adjustment with nearly no change after accounting for differences in demographics, such as age, gender, race, height, weight, socioeconomic status, and comorbid disease. Increased nitrogen dioxide was probably also associated with an increased right ventricular end diastolic volume. However, this relationship was a little bit more tenuous, was sensitive to some of the adjustment that we undertook and appeared to be a more borderline association despite the large sample size. While not very common in air pollution research, we borrowed an etiologic time window or sliding time window analysis that's more widely used in oncology to try and understand whether or not duration of exposure was important. And these approaches really suggested that any relationship between air pollution and right ventricular mass probably required several years before an association could be seen. Accounting for differences in the left ventricle, presence or absence of lung disease, markers of inflammation, or exposure to traffic-related noise, again, did not significantly change our results and suggested that these features, while they may accompany traffic-related air pollution, do not fully explain the relationship between traffic-related air pollution and the right ventricle. So based on the increase in right ventricular mass and the presence of dilation, I think it's tempting to suspect that this represents a right heart under strain or subject to increased afterload. However, while our exploratory analyses argue against some explanations, they don't clearly argue for this intuitive or alternative explanation because we didn't have invasive right heart catheterization or other techniques to try and really confirm this potential hypothesis. Dr. McCormick, oh, this is a fascinating study. This sort of modeling-based research does obviously have some limitations. What are some important limitations you would like to mention? One of the potential limitations of the study is the opportunity for misclassification of exposure or measurement error. The approach employed does not account for the proportion of time that an individual spends indoors or the contribution of outdoor air to the indoor air quality. For example, the degree to which traffic-related pollutants penetrate the indoor airspace depends on factors such as proximity of the home to traffic sources, but also characteristics such as ventilation properties of the home. In addition, the activity pattern and location of an individual will influence their exposure to traffic-related pollution throughout the day. That said, we would expect that a misclassification of exposure would be a non-differential bias in this case, meaning that the exposure assessment would not be linked to changes in the RV measurements. And this type of misclassification would actually bias results toward the null, meaning that the actual association between traffic-related air pollution and right heart changes would be stronger than those reported in the manuscript. There are other limitations of the study that probably warrant mentioning, which include the cross-sectional design. The current findings provide a strong rationale to investigate changes over time with the longitudinal study design, which would 
ultimately increase the level of causal evidence. And then finally, the use of MRI to characterize the RV is a great strength of the study, especially given the large sample size. As Dr. Leary mentioned, the study didn't include invasive measurements of pulmonary hemodynamics, which really wouldn't have been feasible using this type of population study design. However, performance of right heart catheterization or other approaches that might advance our understanding of the mechanistic underpinnings of these findings, which were beyond the scope of this study, would be important next steps. Thanks for that, Dr. McCormick. So, Dr. Leary, the association between higher levels of exposure and the right ventricular mass and volume changes you described was independent of both left heart disease as well as lung disease. I was particularly surprised about lung disease. I'd ask for your comments. Why do you think that's the case? I agree. These analyses, I think, raise some interesting questions and ones that might have run somewhat counter to our original suspicions. We thought that lung disease might be highly important in the relationship of nitrogen dioxide to right ventricular mass. Specifically, prior evidence had showed that air pollution can increase the frequency and severity of exacerbations with airflow obstruction and increase thereby the right ventricular afterload, potentially leading to core pulmonale and changes in the right ventricle. But we really found a near complete lack of change in our results with adjustment for percent emphysema and self-reported lung disease. The near complete lack of change in the results with adjustment for percent emphysema and self-reported lung disease, I don't think argues against a hypothesis in which air pollution has no effect on pulmonary parenchyma or pulmonary pressures, but it does suggest that this relationship is not conditioned on the presence of existing lung disease. Specifically, participants without existing lung disease could still have regional changes in ventilation and perfusion introduced by inhalational exposures that would be still fully supported by our results. However, they didn't need to have lung disease to see this relationship. Thank you for that. I would like to follow up. Uh, you mentioned percent emphysema. So could you mention to the listeners how that was calculated? And obviously, I, I would assume it was beyond the scope of this cohort to have actual pulmonary function data. Those are good questions. So the percent emphysema measure is from a chest CT. It was a pixel-by-pixel -pixel analysis done primarily under the guidance of Graham Barr's group at Columbia in the MESA lung study, where the percent of sembitis lung is a, essentially a function of density on the chest CT scan was calculated for the vast majority of MESA participants. So the question you ask about lung function, spirometry, is a good one and would have, I think, added value to this study. Unfortunately, while much of the MESA cohort ultimately did have pulmonary function tests performed, a large proportion of MESA participants did not have spirometry or pulmonary function tests performed early. And as this was a cross-sectional study looking at participants as they entered the MESA cohort, we didn't feel as though we could use spirometry, other pulmonary function tests from several years after our exposure and outcomes of interest. So while there was spirometry on a subset of our participants, it wasn't enough to allow a meaningful analysis, including these variables as potential confounders. Dr. Leary, I wanted to follow up on that concept. I was wondering if you would hypothesize that 
the presence of underlying lung disease might be an effect modifier of the relationship between traffic and the RV, such that with a difference in the study design where you had a population that might be enriched for individuals with COPD compared to individuals without underlying lung disease, would you expect to find an accentuated effect of traffic on the RV in that diseased population? I think that that's a really interesting question, and certainly my priors or my prior thought process on this would be that that would almost certainly be the case. Uh, And that was part of the reason why we had done the adjustments that we did looking for any difference in the association when accounting for albeit incomplete measures of lung function or lung disease. While we didn't see that in our study, I still wonder whether or not your fundamental assertion may be right on the money. Specifically, if we really had an enriched population with a wide range of lung disease severity, whether or not we might in fact see that this relationship is somewhat conditioned on the presence, absence, or severity of lung disease. That said, while I think that the question is not fully answered, we didn't find evidence for it in our study. Um, I don't think that that means that such a relationship does not exist, but I don't think this data really support that hypothesis. They don't refute it entirely, but they don't support it. And so I think further study, doing just what you suggest, looking at an enriched population with a range of lung disease severity might be an important step to answer that question of whether or not any part of this relationship is conditioned on underlying lung disease. Dr. McCormick, I'd I'd ask for your comment on two interesting study findings. First, the relationship between nitrogen dioxide and right heart changes was much stronger in men than women. And second, the association varied by city of residence. For example, there did not appear to be any association between the two in New York City. To address the first point, the difference in the relationship between nitrogen dioxide and right heart changes between men and women, in the present study, there was a stronger association between nitrogen dioxide and RV mass and between nitrogen dioxide and RV and diastolic volume among men compared to women. And this was interesting as other studies have actually found that women might be more susceptible to the cardiovascular effects of air pollution. And it may be that there are differences in the physiologic responses to pollutant exposure that differ by gender. These may be influenced by hormonal activity or by other factors that differ by gender. Previous work in the MESA study population has revealed gender differences in RV structure and function. It's also possible that differences in the findings in the current study between men and women are due to differences in exposure classification. For example, it's possible that women spend more time indoors so that the classification of outdoor NO2 actually overrepresents their exposure, and this would result in a diminished association between NO2 and RV morphology. If this were the case and men spent more time outdoors, the outdoor NO2 concentrations would be a better approximation of their exposure to outdoor traffic sources, and we would expect to see stronger relationships such as those that are reported in the current study. It's also possible that there are similar factors that may explain some of the differences that were seen between cities. So, for example, there were stronger relationships in Los Angeles, which were consistent with the overall findings of the study. However, in New York City, the region that actually had the highest NO2 concentrations, the relationships were qualitatively different than the hypothesized associations. 
And this could also be due to some misclassification of exposure that differs by city. So it's possible that residents of different cities have different indoor versus outdoor time, different housing characteristics, different co-pollutant admixture of traffic. And those findings might also suggest a role of other pollutants, which may contribute to the heterogeneity of effects that we're seeing between cities. The findings that individuals who lived in neighborhoods longer had a stronger health effects, I thought really added strength to the findings of the present study and suggested a dose-response relationship that would really increase the likelihood of the measured effect being a, a causal effect. So, Dr. Leary, one interpretation of the study is that traffic pollution causes increased RV mass, which in turn leads to higher risk of heart failure and, and death. I understand your study results have been widely reported in the mainstream media, and I'm sure patients are asking you about this. So at this point, uh, you know, recognizing all the caveats that we've discussed in this podcast, what are you telling people with a long daily commute who are frightened by these findings? So I think it's important to contextualize this study for what it is for such an individual. Specifically, I think it's important to point out that we've shown an association between long-term exposure to traffic-related air pollution at your home with small changes in right ventricular structure. So this study was not designed to focus on individual level attributes of exposure. And so, for instance, we don't know whether patterns of exposure, such as brief, intense exposure to traffic-related air pollution or a sustained, moderate exposure to traffic-related air pollution, are more associated with the outcome. And so, as it stands, I believe that our work really adds further weight to existing studies, suggesting the importance of air pollution mitigation on the whole. So nearly all of the participants in our study were exposed to less than the annual average allowed by the EPA for nitrogen dioxide, and yet we saw an association with cardiac structure, suggesting that even at these low levels, there may be a biologic association. Beneath this more broad umbrella, our results don't clearly indicate or direct day-to-day -day activities. They don't prescribe limitations or really inform a discussion of patterns of daily life, such as how you commute, whether to use air filters or other similar ideas. Uh, and I think that factor is important as you look at these study results, as well as a moment's hesitation to say that this is the first study that has really shown an association between air pollution and the right ventricle. But it is not the first study to show an association between air pollution and, and cardiovascular risks. And so I think societally it's important to do as much as we can and take steps to potentially mitigate these risks. However, our study did not specifically inform aspects of daily life that patients and members at large of society should do differently as a result of our findings. Thank you for providing that context. So I'd like to finish off the podcast with a question for you both. I asked Dr. McCormick first, I think that novel and interesting studies such as the one we're talking about today often produce more questions than answers. And we've already brought up some of the obvious issues and interesting questions going forward, specifically the effect of lung function on RV and studying that further. But I'd ask you, as you've had some time to reflect on the data, what are to you the most important unresolved questions 
coming out of this work, and how do we as a group answer them going forward? I think this work is very exciting in that it highlights and really focuses for the first time on the effect of traffic-related pollution on the RV as an independent area, but an area that is literally the intersection between pulmonary health effects and cardiac health effects that have been reported before. I think these findings really support a need for studies that in the future will try to elicit the potential mechanisms for RV effects, and it might include studies that would incorporate invasive assessment of the pulmonary circulation, as well as following up on whether mechanisms include inflammatory pathways, oxidative stress, direct effects on the respiratory epithelium. I also think there's a need to study susceptible populations in the wake of, this, of these findings, including those with underlying cardiac and pulmonary disease. And one example might be looking at RV changes among individuals with COPD, a group that's at increased risk for RV changes and also known to have increased risk for pulmonary effects of air pollution. And then also extending these findings to think about how they might apply to maybe less prevalent but very highly relevant diseases such as pulmonary hypertension would be another avenue that I think would be of great interest. Exciting findings. And Dr. Leary, I ask you to close the podcast on your thoughts about going forward. I can't agree more with Dr. McCormick. My fundamental core, I'm a clinician, and understanding how these results are relevant to vulnerable patient populations, I think is one of the major interesting and potentially unanswered questions from this study. And whether those populations include patients and people with underlying heart or underlying lung disease, anything that's complicated by right heart failure may potentially be a vulnerable population that is ripe for further study to try and understand how mitigation of air pollution might change the natural history to some degree of those diseases. And so I think that that is a very interesting avenue moving forward. The interepidemiologist in me, on the other hand, has been very intrigued by the really marked city-specific heterogeneity in our results. This isn't uncommon in air pollution research, but I think assuming it is not the result of unmeasured or residual confounding, which are certainly concerns, I think it raises interesting questions about how this association is formed and develops at its core. As a really pivotal example in our results, we saw that participants in St. Paul and Winston-Salem had nearly the same exposure to nitrogen dioxide, yet St. Paul had the largest association with right ventricular mass, while Winston-Salem had nearly inverse association with right ventricular mass. And a similar relationship between Los Angeles and New York City existed. So I think understanding why air pollution seems to have different associations by city may be a key to unlock cofactors that are important in a phenotype of protection versus susceptibility to the ill effects of air pollution. Thank you both for an informative discussion. What an interesting study. The first of its kind describing an independent association between traffic-related air pollution and right ventricular changes. This study provides so much food for thought and ideas for future work, such as confirming a cause and effect relationship between traffic-related air pollution and right ventricular changes, understanding the pathogenesis behind this, and identifying populations that may be at particular risk for effects of traffic-related air pollution exposure. I encourage all of our listeners to read the article 
as well as the accompanying editorial in the May 1st, 2014 American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. A complete archive of the article discussion podcast can be found at atsjournals.org as well as thoracic.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. I'm Nitin Thiem for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine.